Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It was the best of time. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. To fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. To fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Here we are, it's another The Things That Made England. I'm Royfield Brown and I'm joined by um, the podcasting Robin to me being Batman. Who are you? What does that even mean? I'm your sidekick. There you go, oh, there you God, go. The penny drops. <laughs> David. Yes, Royfield. You, on many a podcast... I've referred to me as a brummy. You take the mick out of my accent. I think that's hard, actually. I don't take the mick. I think I've been very supportive. Uh... I've even suggested psychiatric help. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. But Birmingham is a very peculiarly English city. So what are you going it... to do, Birmingham, for your things that made England? I am. I am. Me? I am. Because the more I think wow. about my hometown the more I realise that it is quintessentially English. I welcome this opportunity of giving a brief indication and explanation of Birmingham's activities. For, contrary to popular belief, the city is not entirely industrialised, but, as you will see, combines great industrial activity with fine architectural features and much natural beauty. First, we see the industrial side indicated by the Prince's Electricity Station, opened by His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, and then one of our large motor works capable of turning out 1,200 cars per week. Leaving the industrial side, we glance at some architectural features of the city. Mason's College, the older section of the Birmingham University, and then the new university, accommodates nearly 2,000 students. There are over 3,000 acres of public parks and open spaces within the city, 
including the famous Licky Hills, comprising a vast tract of unspoiled countryside. No picture of the city would be complete without the Hall of Memory, a shrine to 13,000 citizens who lost their lives in the Great War. And now I am going to leave you, but I sincerely hope that when you depart from this busy Birmingham station, many pleasant memories of our city will remain. So it's the second city of England, and it's the city of a thousand trades. It's at the heart of modern say, when Britain. It, when is it the second city of England? Okay. In terms of population size, of course, first you have London with... And there are different ways to measure this. You know, there is the conurbation of London, there is the, the metropolitan boroughs of London. But let's just say for the sake of argument that London has between 7 and, and, and 8 million inhabitants. The next biggest... English city is Birmingham, which has just over a million. Um, Manchester, which a lot of people around the world suspect and think is the second city, has about half a million. Even Liverpool has a higher population than Manchester. But there is a big caveat to all of that. There is the conurbation which is, you know, the built-up area. So the built-up area of Manchester, Greater Manchester, which has places like Bolton and Wigan, um, that is almost exactly the same size as the conurbation of the West Midlands where Birmingham sits. But in terms of drawing a line around uh, the municipality, the city, Birmingham is the second city of England and Britain. Yeah, my, and, my, I wasn't actually arguing with that, um, I All I was saying was, at what point does Birmingham become oh, England's? It, it becomes, I believe, it's the end of the 19th century. It's to, it Basically, it crosses over with Liverpool and Glasgow. At the time when the empire is at its strongest in the late Victorian phase, Birmingham kind of comes from nowhere, which is, I'm saying fundamentally is this really English trait. So Glasgow was seen as the second city of the empire for a long time. Liverpool in the mid 19th century was seen as the second city of England. And, and therein is Birmingham's problem here that we don't have specifically one trade, one use of which we're famous for. Hence, the city of a thousand trades. And that has been one of the reasons why we've not really been able to market and brand ourselves, even within England and Britain. Because you say I'd to like people, to there are some other reasons. But I mean, obviously, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Royfield, because, you know, it was going. Uh, you know, I'm still on my first line. Are of, you? Of, of, okay. of well, this, I, just, yeah. I was just going to say that you were going to make this proposition that England is, that Birmingham is a quintessentially England place. Yeah. Okay. Because... I'm sorry, I interrupted. You're quite right. Keep going. All right, so Birmingham is the cultural, social and financial centre of the Midlands. And that's kind of quite important into the story As opposed to of Leicester. Birmingham. Apart from Leicester, obviously. Sorry, keep David, going. Right. It's just annoying. Can, can, so if a place is the epitome of Englishness, I think you need to have had at least a civil war battle there. Some Victorian grandeur have some link to the Industrial Revolution have ring roads and have some link with modern British cuisine, Baltis. That's Birmingham. That is Birmingham. That is true. You know, no, I'm not and the growth that. and the growth of oh, Birmingham. Carries. Oh. <laughs> the growth of Birmingham oh. shadows the rise of industrial modern England. 
As I said before, it's a city of a thousand trades and it fueled the Industrial Revolution. Now, David, Birmingham was mentioned in the Doomsday Book. I think I said you were quite about Brum, didn't I? Yeah, you did. About, oh, yeah, I, I forget the name of the, the gentleman traveller. John Leland. Uh, yes, yes. So Birmingham is mentioned in the Doomsday Book, but it only becomes an urban centre worth remarking in 1166 when Peter de Birmingham got a charter to hold a cattle market at his castle. Is that right? It was, so it comes yeah. from Peter Birmingham? Yep. Like and God? it was a bull ring. And after that, the market town began. Do you know what a bull ring means? I learned this I'd... the other day in the uh, Isle of Wight. You, you know you've got me. the bull ring in Birmingham, yeah? Mm-hmm, yeah. In a town, you would have a bull ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is really horrible, so you might want to turn away. Um, mm-hmm. Because, of course, in those days, bull baiting was something that you did. Uh, and uh-huh. you would have a ring, and you'd tie the bull to the ring, and that's where the, the sport would take place, mm-hmm. sport. Ah, I just presume it's where they sold cattle. Uh, uh, there's a. I went to but a place bull in Isle of Wight where they've still got their bull ring, and there was a um, big explanation. I mean, maybe it's different from Birmingham. Maybe it's a different origin of the name. But anyway, that is one of the origins of the name bull, of having a place in a town called the Bull Ring. Goodness, horrid, isn't it? Class Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, carry on. Yes, to the Bull now, Ring. The the lordship of the de Birmingham family ends in the early 16th century. And this is kind of really important because the city throws off medievalism and it gave the small new burgeoning Birmingham a high degree of social and economic freedom. In other words, it gave it the space to reinvent itself. A space for growth. Now, the town developed a strand of radicalism Mm -hmm. that was strongly parliamentarian during the Civil War. Yeah. And the Battle of Birmingham was really a bit of a skirmish, really, in in a place called Derrick End in 1643. Saw part of the town torched by the bloody royalists. Yeah, it's the bloody royalists. Prince Rupert. It was. Yeah. Now, David... I, some 330 years later, grew up in an area of Birmingham called Perry Bar on a road oh, yes, called... Perry Bar vaguely, I've driven past oh. it circular anyway. On a road called King Standing Road. Oh, yes. Which was the lane where King Charles was supposed to watch the battle from. Ah, fantastic. Yeah, so I no, lived at 88 quite... King Standing Road for 12 years as a wee little kid. Anyway... Let's move on. At the start of the 18th century, Birmingham's population had increased 15-fold. And the 18th century is where we really get the explosion of Birmingham. So the market town is gone. And what we have in the 18th century is the Midlands Enlightenment, which oversaw the Industrial Revolution. Hang on, the Midlands Enlightenment? Yeah, this is a thing. Get onto Wikipedia, you know, catch up whilst I talk, sir. Now, this brought advances in science, technology and economic development, producing a series of innovations that laid many of the foundations of the modern industrial society. 
that turbocharged the British Empire. The Midlands Enlightenment is also known, David, as the Birmingham Enlightenment. It was a, it was a scientific, economic, political offshoot of the Age of Entitlement. Sure, so, it's not, sure that's not the Loughborough Enlightenment. Uh, no, it's not. Now, whilst right. the French, whilst our French neighbours had their literary salons and their coffee houses, you know, and printed books and and had their books and pamphlets printed by Rousseau and the Marquis de Sade and all of that stuff, us Brummies got busy with steam power. At the core of the movement were the members of the Lunar Society of Birmingham, who included Erasmus Darwin, grandfather of Charles, Matthew Bolton. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? <laughs> Sorry, who was that? David? The Erasmus of Birmingham? Erasmus Darwin. Oh, that's his name. Charles. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Where is this? Oh, I see. Okay. You see. I'm sorry. I thought you were saying. You, you, you need to listen, sir. Because obviously. Birmingham. David, you're obviously getting an education now. So I, I am. I would, if I was you, I would sit back and listen I'm and be educated. I'm just famous painters of Birmingham, by the way. Yes, you're right. Keep going. All right. So, Erasmus. Grandfather of Charles Darwin, Matthew Bolton, James Watt, Joseph Priestley, jo Josiah Wedgwood, James Kerr and Thomas Day. These are names steeped into the bone marrow of and you English James greatness. Watt, from Birmingham? Dude, it, like, he invented industrial stream engine in Birmingham. But let me come on to that. Yeah, come on, David. Scottish, Jimmy David, Watt. David, please. Now, Matthew Bolton was their first Henry Ford of his day. He opened the Soho Manufactory in the mid-18th century, pioneering mechanisation under one roof, where previously separate manufacturing activities had taken place in different places. He brought them all under the same roof, creating the largest manufacturing unit in Europe. He created the first factory. Now, David... 1776 is a year of great importance for humanity. It is, the, it certainly is, and we know why. The, I'm about to tell you. For the first time, humankind became free because of the invention of the industrial steam engine by James Watt and Matthew Bolton Excellent. in Birmingham. I knew in this otherwise... I couldn't put my finger on <laughs> In this otherwise unremarkable year, Human society harnessed a power greater than that of the hand, water, or an animal. Well, it is God. arguably, it is arguably the most pivotal moment of the entire modern history of man. This happened in my hometown of Birmingham. Well, I'm Birmingham. Now, the close relationship between um, Enlightenment, Birmingham's leading thinkers. Men like Matthew Bolton, James Kerr, not only created a new industry, but also the first rebranding of a city. Out went the old name of Brummagem, hence Brummies. That's where we get Brummies from, Brummagem. Where, sorry? Uh, the old name of the city was Brummagem. Was it? Yeah. Huh. The new middle classes that flocked to this uh, burgeoning city, well, burgeoning town, it wasn't a city then, didn't like that name. So they renamed it in the late 18th century as Birmingham. Birmingham. Yeah. What more modern and forward-thinking exercise is there than that? 
that the now, rebranding. That, exactly. If only they'd come now, up with iHeart Birmingham. <laughs> the world, the history of the world of branding would have been so. We could have been all different. Now, David, with all this muck, there came a whole load of brass. Brass followed by proper cash. The demand for capital to feed uh, the economic and urban expansion of Birmingham grew exponentially. Birmingham became a major financial centre. Lloyds Bank, heard of that? Bank was founded in the town in 1765. Um, Ketley's Building Society, the world's first, was was founded in Birmingham. Slightly less famous, obviously. It is slightly less famous, but it's the fact that it's the first building society. Right. Stop it. Oh, is that right? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's definitely interesting. Cool. Now, the Midland Bank, the forerunner to the HSBC Bank in the UK, also took its first deposits in the city in round in, in the late 18th century. And just to bring the circle back with HSBC Bank, they opened its largest UK office, its UK headquarters in Birmingham in 2018 to the slogan, We've Come Home. Oh, By 1800, the West Midlands had more banking offices per head than any other region in Britain, including London. That's how much of a financial market uh, Birmingham was. That's, they needed capital to fuel the new industrial revolution. By 1791, Birmingham was hailed as the first manufacturing town in the world, the city truly of a thousand trades. They just did everything in Birmingham. And as I kind of said before, this is a city's strength, but also its weakness, because unlike Liverpool or Manchester, I'd call those places great cities, but there were historically one-trick pony towns. They could forge a distinct profile because they had one major industry. Mm. But in Brum, we did everything from chocolate, Cadbury's, tea, Typhoon, cars, British Mayland and the Midland, guns, jewellery, you name it. Us Brummies did it. Even Bird's Custard. So many iconic British brands actually come from Birmingham. Hence, we people cannot define Birmingham easily in terms of industry. But what but Birmingham is, is a microcosm of industrial Britain in one dirty but thrusting city. Thousands of small workshops practice in a wide variety of specialised and highly skilled trades, which encouraged an ex- exceptional levels of creativity and innovation and provided a base of economic prosperity that was to last until the final quarter of the 20th century. All right, I'm now, convinced of Birmingham's... Uh, central importance. And of course, the Lunar Society that you referred to, mm-hmm. you're saying that was based in Birmingham, mm-hmm. gave rise to one of England's, one of my favourite painters, actually, of all time. Uh, certainly favourite English painter of all time. Although he wasn't born in Birmingham, he came from Derby, but he's part of that Lunar Society. And of course, he's a Midlander. So, you know, we, we share a common bond, all those Midlanders. Uh, Joseph Wright was one of the few painters who painted the Industrial Revolution as a period of scientific wonder, miracle, invention, and joy. You know, so many of the paintings were about mm-hmm. oh, the ruination of the English countryside sort of thing, dark satanic mills. Ah, right yes. He was about the wonder of the invention and the excitement that came with it. You know, fantastic scenes of uh, of industry, of, of hard work, of families 
you know, uh, in the midst of the industrial revolution, it's entirely positive. So that, uh, just a little, little bit of enthusiasm to go along with the um, the sniping. Well, thank you for your enthusiasm, sir. Now, this brand new city had a high level of social mobility and a culture of political radicalism. And we kind of mentioned this before in terms of this was a, a real strong puritanical hotbed uh, in, in terms of the English Civil War. This led to new and open thinking. In effect, this was Britain's first new town. It gave birth to leaders such as Thomas Atwood and Joseph Chamberlain. Now, Birmingham rose to national political prominence with the call for political reform in the early 19th century with, as I said before, Mr Thomas Atwood and the Birmingham Political Union that preceded the passing of the Great Reform Act of 1832. What you had, and you'll know this, David, up until that point, rotten boroughs. You had so many areas of the country that weren't represented in Parliament. And the map of Parliament went all the way back to the medieval age. And all of a sudden, in the last hundred years, you had these new towns springing up all over the place. And the Great Reform Act of 1832 righted that historical wrong that somewhere like Birmingham, which had then, I'm going to say, a population of about at least 150,000, if not even more than that, didn't have an NP. And you'd have some old rotten borough in the middle of Leicestershire that maybe had a population of five and had an MP. Yeah, well, and, last year we deserved more MPs. It was just that little bit brighter than everybody else. So anyway, the union's meetings <laughs> on Newhall Hill in 1831 and 1832 were the largest political assemblies that Britain had ever seen. That's how important Thomas Atwood and the Birmingham Political Union were in helping to get the Great Reform Act of 1832 started. Again, you've seen Birmingham at the heart of the burgeoning, young, new, modern England and Britain. Now, um, another notable political brummy of the 19th century is Chamberlain. You talk about Austin Chamberlain. Joe Chamberlain, the great, um, I great am. Joe, yeah. Now, he was obviously the father of Neville. Chamberlain and that piece of white paper. Um, he is the model of Victoria, uh, the model Victorian civic patron. He brought grass lighting to Corporation Street in Birmingham, creating a boulevard that Brummies could stroll down safely in the middle of the night. He is the model. He was the model of civic paternalism in the great Victorian age. Victorian fathers that defined their towns because it always were men that bestrode towns and stuff modeled themselves on him he was the blueprint for them to copy to to copy in terms of somebody who'd made their money but then decided to give back to the the town the city of his birth i mean that's true actually it's very interesting that um that joe chamberlain is incredibly important isn't he in uh, defining the importance of towns and um, his loyalty being to his region and his town and his pride, civic pride in that. Like, mm. um, uh, you know, like Colston in Bristol, although Colston has far more unfortunate associations as well, given his, his contact with slavery. Mm. Slavery, um, yeah. But, uh, you know, that was that is a tradition which you see very little of now. You know, the Joe Ch where are the modern Joe Chamberlains? Well, you know... Um... We don't see it now in large part because of the way we structured local government. 
that the what is it is it two thirds three quarters of all revenues for for our towns are actually derived centrally from central government yeah and of course and they that, screw them over every time they need to a, cut something yeah exactly exactly so we don't have english cities british cities let's be honest because this is a uk-wide problem do not have the same amount of economic and political independence of let's say german french and or um, american which is the reason why um you know and when, when you think about it we've only had london uh, an elected mayor of london for what yeah no, 20 absolutely. years 18 I mean, years an effort wasn't it to try and restart that but you're absolutely right until the finances are devolved and that local power is devolved locally but then as you know Royfield you know I believe that we should be dissolving the union getting rid of an English parliament and all getting getting rid of an English parliament Parliament. you just said getting rid of an English parliament which I'm sure is a slip no it wasn't a get rid of an English parliament have regional parliaments um being part of a united federated Europe <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm a little bit more nutty in my political views as every year goes by. <laughs> but you see, it's because um, you know I'm a I'm a Billy Bragg supporter. Anyway, I'm taking you away from from Brum. All right. So, um, Birmingham's tradition for innovation continued into the 19th century, where schoolteacher Roland Hill invented the postage stamp. He created the first modern universal postal system in 1839. Now, staying in the 19th century, the Gun Quarter was a vital district of the city. And very obviously, with a, with a name like Gun Quarter, you can imagine that the city was made up of different different manufacturing quarters. So they're, making they're, soft they're, toys, was it? They're, they're exactly, for Hasbro, making soft toys for Hasbro. Right. The Gun Quarter sat right next to the Jewelry Quarter. Now, I've been to the Jewelry Quarter. I used to go to the Jewelry Quarter quite a bit. It's just all quite, very, still quite very lovely. Yeah. Very lovely in the Jewelry Quarter. And it still is a centre for jewelry manufacturing in in England, in the UK, and actually globally, there is a school of jewellery making uh, there, which is part of the University of Birmingham. Now, um, so the the gun quarter was vital to the growth of the city and it to become this manufacturing hub. And it's estimated that 800,000 weapons were shipped from Birmingham to America during the American Civil War. Mm, Blimey. Blimey indeed. Now, all this innovation made Birmingham rich and Birmingham, as I said, kind of said before, remained by far Britain's most prosperous regional city as late as the 1970s, with household incomes exceeding even those of London and the southeast. as recently as that. You know, so but the city was extensively redeveloped in the 1950s and 60s. This included the construction of large tower block estates such as Castle Vale. The ball ring was reconstructed and New Street Station, which is the train station, was redeveloped. Basically, David, this is a story where all of the beautiful Victorian buildings were stripped down, were knocked down in the name of progress. That's a disaster, Um, isn't it? But again, it's a disaster but it's also a very English story. It is. Are we, talking of, 19, we got to the 1950s all of a sudden. Yeah, this is the 1950s ah, and 60s. It's a disaster. Yeah, the entire and country. And we look back at it now, but again, 
Birmingham was first in that regard. Because it was so rich and so prosperous, it took on these models of um, how he thought cities were going to be. And actually, he looked across the Atlantic to, to America and to the rise of, of the car and said, right, we need ring roads because everyone's going to have a car. Birmingham did that first. Again, it apes what happened all throughout England for the next 30 years. Do you know what, do you know what of course, all this isn't necessarily Birmingham. It's, uh, we, we always talk about the towns and the hideous buildings that were created and um, you know, the destruction of so much of our heritage. But mm-hmm. the same was absolutely true in the countryside, of course, where or the vast majority of our ancient forest was ripped up uh, in the name of efficient agriculture and large fields. Uh, you know, it's a ruinous decade for the, um, for the environment of England. I didn't know that at all. Yeah, it's a hideous story. You know, all um, the again, the vast majority of our ancient woodlands, ancient woodlands being something I think it's more than continuously the same for more than six hundred years or something, uh, just absolutely destroyed. David, you schooled me. I've learned something. Thank there. you. God, well, you always learn something. In fact. That's mainly the reason you come on this show, isn't it? Well, I don't necessarily always learn something particularly useful, but that was. That was <laughs> that was useful. Now, in the decades that followed World War II, the ethnic makeup of Birmingham changed significantly as it received waves of immigration from the Commonwealth of Nations, the ex-British Empire. So people like my folks came over from Jamaica, the West Indies, from India, Pakistan, etc. Well on the Browns, welcome. This helped give rise to a music called Bangra, which fused um, Western pop sensibilities with the music of India, two-tone ska, which we did a show about. And, and these are two genres of music which are all about East meets West, basically. that some element of white English culture being mixed with the sensibilities of the new immigrant communities. Again, a more beautiful and apt metaphor for multiracial Britain you can't hope to find. Now, there is one black mark on the city, David. People it's think that normally it's, 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 the, it's the ring roads and things like that, but that's such an obvious one that I'm, I'm not going to say that. The black mark is that Birmingham is also the birthplace of heavy metal music with bands such I, as Black you know, Sabbath, you you know Judas get... Priest... And half oh, of Led Zeppelin. I've got so many things to argue about this. First of all, Steeple mm. Bell is going to have a go at you for saying that Birmingham is the birthplace of heavy metal. Because Steeple well, would say it comes mm. from the Vietnam War, where I think the story is the soldiers have come back from fighting in the fields and say, and have a dose of heavy metal, or whatever that is. Well, we can talk about the name, which you know gave gave uh, was was then put on top of the music but it's within musical canon in the UK that heavy metal came from Birmingham and I don't think that Ozzy Osbourne was referring back creatively to the <laughs> Vietnam War when he I was doing think his thing. even knew what the Vietnam War was let alone there Vietnam. you go or indeed there America you- probably um, so the thing that you said, though, which I'm finding difficult to deal with, is you described it as a black mark. It Surely, is a black mark. Birmingham's it is a black mark. glory. All those hundreds no. of years of development and civilization and struggle David, and no. strife and blood and sweat came together in one glorious cultural egg. 
cacophony of a din of a sound and and no something which has at the donington monsters of rock concert in 1988 (laughs) the first one they were fantastic Mm. the very fact that the thing was called the monsters of rock and you have to reach back to 1988 (laughs) tells me everything i need to know about this cul-de-sac of a musical form david it's like but anyway Oh, Jesus. Well, they from Saxon. Brum as well. Jeff Lynn. Right. Jeff Lynn is Jeff a Jeff Lynn was. He, absolutely. I'll tell you, it's, we, we, tr- we try and expunge these people from our collective <laughs> memories <laughs> as Brummers. But David, Good. David, David, we're, so with industry, canals, music, philosophy, politics, the destruction of the city centre in the 1960s, I put it to you, sir, that this city is England. Royfield, I, I couldn't even begin to deny such a proposition. I mean, you know, what, what can I say? I, I mean, you might get a bit more sympathy if you decided to call it, say, the, the Midlands. Uh, <laughs> the then, you know, then I could no, agree with you what? even more enthusiastically. No, but you know what? I didn't yeah, even I bring that. up literature because you say Midlands and then people go, oh, Shakespeare. You know, we even had Tolkien. Do they say that? Midlands yeah, they do. Judas Priest to me. <laughs> well, I don't know which bit of the Midlands you're from. But like I could have even brought in Tolkien. I could, but I just thought, you know what? I didn't want this to be as long a, an episode from me and as flabby as the one that I did about football. So but- I took out literature. I took out uh, the pre-Raphaelites. There's so many things I took out, you know. So I didn't even mention HP Source. I didn't, which comes you from didn't Birmingham. didn't mention HP Source. No, yeah. no. Well, I could have gone on. Very wise. He didn't men- mention the mighty villa, you know, the home of real, pro- hey, real football. Let's stop it now. Let's have you're, no, you're, no you're swear words here. Fan. Let's have no swear words on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? You're a Bromwich fan. <laughs> Bromwich. No, I'm a Bir- Birmingham City fan. Oh, God. Do they still play football there? Oh, stop it. Anyway, <laughs> David, I think you'll find... No, we're right. in total agreement. We're in total agreement. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. And uh, uh, You know you're... what? I'm, I'm just going to say this, listener, that if you are also part of the Facebook group... And you vote this down, you will find yourself barred from the things that made <laughs> in your Facebook your group. So yeah. It's a great way if you want to get chucked out of the group, which you probably all want to do anyway. <laughs> this is a great way to do it because Roy Field will have you. <laughs> I absolutely will. Now, David, um, shall we go and see what our Luke have found on the great book of face? First things first, I'm sure that I speak for all of us when I say welcome back to David and Royfield. What a pleasure it was to see a new TTME episode drop after a short hiatus. The guys have been busy with maps, films and their longer running ventures, but it is great that they have also managed to find the time to record some episodes for this podcast, which we all enjoy so much. Geography was the subject that David proposed as a thing that made England for this return episode. And it all seemed rather uncontentious to begin with. Even Royfield, who can normally be trusted to raise a storm in a teacup, seemed to be quietly acquiescing to David's convincing arguments. I was hoping more members of the Facebook group were going to pick Royfield up on his view of the North which he seems to think has changed very little since it was harrowed by William the Bastard. At one point, we only had a couple of clear votes against the motion, and those were from Thomas and Steve, 
who, being from across the pond, are people we could describe as ornery. Though, I have to admit, they both did come back with cogent reasoning when I quizzed them about why they had voted against. They have been joined by two more naysayers. There are also four people who are all, hmm, not sure. But these eight are ranged against the massed 45 who think that of course geography should go in the cabinet and have thus shown themselves to be not barking mad. William was quick out of the blocks to confirm that, as an island, the geography of England has been influential, particularly as she could focus on her navy rather than having to have a large standing army. Reverting to type, we then had a discussion about the weather and how it is affected by the geography of England. My biggest surprise was to see how many people seem to agree with David that English weather is better than California's. We also heard that Ken did not get his knickers in a twist on the day of his marriage to Jennifer in Scotland. Are we even allowed to say Scotland in this podcast? I imagine I would be in all sorts of trouble if I brought up the recent rugby match between the old enemies. Still looking for that Calcutta Cup, eh, David? The commenting was all rather genteel until some numpty decided that what we really needed was a bit of Brexit. And then it all kicked off, much as I hoped it would. As we have already established, Alan is right about most things, and once again was the voice of reason to point out that there were a myriad of motivations behind the vote to leave the European Union, most of them domestic and entirely unrelated to how the British view their not-so-fellow Europeans. Catherine brought up some really interesting points about the impulses she had observed in her family who voted for Brexit. She even managed to include a reference to Star Trek, which shows some class. Then we had Rowena, who, even though she is from the most lardy dart South Buckinghamshire, can certainly also be described as honorary. She waxed lyrical about how wonderfully varied the English landscape is, and she got the backing of Stephen, who pointed out that the English landscape was at least as varied as other great nations of Europe, including not only Luxembourg, but also Malta. Stephen has an interesting diacritical mark on his surname, which I have no idea how to pronounce. Other things that are worth coming over to visit our Facebook site to see include Alison Mary's St Billy of Bragg post, some stuff about tea from David, and Fiona's pick of her great-granddaughter, who might be Pennsylvania born and bred, but knows how to sup the national drink of her ancestors. What you really need to avoid, though, is Witherspoon's post about milk coke. Finally, I would just like to send all of our best regards and a collective get well soon to my fellow collaborator Fiona, and we hope to hear you back on the airwaves very soon. Thank you for that, Luke. As always, um, some interesting views, and I think people were glad that we're back, David. Uh, were they? But nobody commented. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we're glad you're back. That's the main thing. Rife. Yeah, good. I now, seem to have started calling you Rife. Can I formally apologize? I, I, I like it. I like it. Seriously? It's very, very close to Rafe. I've always liked the name right. Rafe. Well, do you want me to call you, like... just call you Rafe? No, call me Rafe. I can do that. Or, I don't know, you've got anything you like, really. 
my my lord and master. You can call no, me that. that possibly accepted. Anyway, we we guess we've moved in seamlessly into blather, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Now, do you want to wrap this show up? Yes, please. Oh, do you want me to wrap it up? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening, everybody. That's fantastic. It's very good to be. It's good to be back. Um, and uh, so it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from him. Goodbye.
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.